The Burning Bird presents The Phoenix Files, featuring Steve Leinert. But, uh, you know what? I'm shoot or shoot. Alexander Shaggy Shragus. And that Nardy was wild. And then it ends. Nard gets uh, the gold. And Harvish Huck Meta. Oh, my God. Again, this is what the Phoenix do. You know, they give me hope. They give me hope. Welcome, Phoenix fans, to The Burning Bird presents The Phoenix Files Game of the Week. This week, we hearken back to June 9, 2018, when the Phoenix hosted the Pittsburgh Thunderbirds at A.A. Garthwaite Stadium in front of one of the biggest crowds in Philadelphia Phoenix history. We're finally back to my dulcet tones, as the teams were even through the first quarter, with Pittsburgh going on a run to close the gap at sixes. The teams came out strong in the second quarter, but it was the Phoenix who were able to take control, notching a slew of breaks as the quarter wore on. Vince Radoms, a Phoenix old hat, went off as the teams took control of the game and the Phoenix took a 13-9 lead into halftime. Both birds came out firing in the third quarter, trading holds until the score was 19-14, with the Phoenix able to cut through the Thunderbird zone and Pittsburgh able to huck it through the Philly defense. But it was the Phoenix who were able to take advantage as time wore on, notching a trio of breaks to end the third at 22-16. Both teams seemed to coast in the fourth quarter, and the Thunderbirds were unable to come back into it. The Phoenix would cruise to a 30-21 victory, despite the efforts of Pat Hammonds, current coach but former player. Mike Arcata ended the game with one of his best efforts in the season, with five goals, five assists, and two blocks. Sean Mott had six goals and three assists. Ethan Fortin had five assists. Igor, Igor Smola had two goals and three Ds. Max Shepard had three goals and six assists for the visiting Pittsburgh Thunderbirds to go along with six turnovers. Coach Pat Hammonds and player coach Pat Hammonds is joining us here uh, for uh, this particular segment. Coach, thanks for joining us for this, uh, for this episode of The Burning Bird. Thanks for coming home with us. My pleasure. I'm super excited to throw it back to 2018. So how was, how was it being a player coach in this game? Uh difficult uh if i had to give it one word um anytime that uh i had to take a player coach role which was a, a handful of times in 2018 uh it was not by design i felt like i was definitely giving up um some effectiveness as a coach whenever i had to uh string up the cleats and 2018 was a year where i was coming off of a pretty serious injury from the uh, prior season and had moved from the field you know from a player role to a head coach role um, and was really trying to embrace that full on. So anytime I threw a jersey on, I wasn't as fit and trim and ready to go as as the previous iteration. So it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, the Phoenix also had a player coach this season in Trey Katzenbach, and we talked a little bit last week about how it felt like we needed Trey to commit to one of those roles as the season wore on, either player Trey or coach Trey, and then it was hard to get a sense of perspective, but if you could go back to 2018 and redesign the Thunderbirds for the perfect Pat Hammond ideology, which one would you choose? Would you choose to be player Pat or coach Pat? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think walking away from the game from a player was really tough for me. Um, and I, you know, like sitting on the, on the fence between 2017 and 2018, 
Uh, I really struggled with that, uh, trying to figure out, you know, like if that transition was what I would want. Uh, but it's one that's been super rewarding and I really have fell in love with the game in a totally different way. Um, thinking about your question, I, you know, um, I think especially in 2018, I'd have to say that it's tough to wear both hats, that I'd be a better guy, you know, when I was on the sidelines and able to kind of keep an eye in the sky and, and stay a step removed uh, from play. Um, you know, Trey is a guy who, you know, at, at that moment in time was was a much better player at that point in time than I was. So he was bringing a lot more to the table from a competitive standpoint uh, between the lines. Um, you know, I definitely wasn't I wasn't in that shape or, or wasn't that much of a contributor um, in 2018, um, you know, but as a player, I wanted to be um, in every single point. I wanted to be vicious. I wanted to just go, go, go. Uh, and I really respected the role of, you know, David Hogan, my coach uh, for the Thunderbirds in making those determinations and, and being strategic about lines and making sure that he was maximizing guys. And, you know, as a coach, that's something that is important to me as well. You know, I think of Max Shepard. He's a guy who, you know, never turns it off. And if it were up to him, he'd be out there every single point, chasing down every single pass, um, and, you know, it's up for me as a player, Sam Van Dusen's another guy um, where, you know, in order to get the most out of them, you know, they they put a lot of faith in me to help them make those decisions that I it, it's really tough to make when when you're trying to go all in from a competitive standpoint. I, I had a I had a quick question on just so so you're a coach now. And mm -hmm. so in 2018, I'm just looking at Pittsburgh in general and and. The teams, the two main teams that we think about when we think of Pittsburgh are the Thunderbirds and Temper, right? Mm -hmm. And in 2018, I think Temper finally went to Nationals. They beat Patrol for the game to go uh, to Nationals. And the year year after that, we see Thunderbirds make playoffs. And then we also see Temper have a very successful season. So in Philadelphia, we have we have some issues with just like commitments from Patrol and, and the pop program and, and the Phoenix. And, try to, and we're trying to combine them and just try to get – as much talent as we can on one team. And mm -hmm. some people prioritize Phoenix and then some other people prioritize clubs. How do you guys, so just looking at the Pittsburgh trend, I'm seeing it go upward, right? So what are you guys doing differently? I know in DC we have Daryl, right? And he has, and he kind of controls truck stop and DC Breeze, but what, what goes on in Pittsburgh? It's a really good question. And I think that, you know, like over the last couple of years in Pittsburgh, um, you know, at least in the first couple years of uh, our AUDL experience, because we joined the league in 2015, we were, were not an original team. Um, you know, the early years was a bit of a pendulum. I remember um, that first year, 2015, there were some guys who joined in and like had a really, really, really positive experience. It was a little bit of an unknown. Um, and so we saw a bunch of the club guys come over. We saw some, you know, in, in 2014, I want to say temper made uh, club nationals as well. You know, we, we had guys who were committed to both, um, going into the 2018 season, that pendulum swung back towards club a little bit. I think, you know, guys felt, um, the grind of the back-to-back -back seasons, guys who were like big contributing members for the Thunderbirds, you know, in the, in the spring and early summer, and then, um, are carrying a lot of the club weight in the, in the late summer and, and fall. Um, you know, it is a grind. Um, so, you know, just thinking about that 2018 team, like we lost Max Thorne, Pat Earls, Anson, uh, Ty D, uh, Thomas Edmonds, Xavier Maxstadt. Like we had a bunch of big departures and, you know, part of it was that club dynamic. Um, 
I think right now we're in a place where um, the city has kind of embraced the concept that, um, you know, the teams can really cohabitate and players can get a lot more and, and see significant growth by, um, you know, playing under both systems and playing for both teams and getting a, a wealth of experience as far as uh, who, you know, who's coaching them and all of those kind of things. So um, we're definitely have been swinging back towards valuing and trying to make sure that we can do everything we can to allow players to be successful um, kind of with a foot in, in each ring. So, <clears throat> so Pat, you, uh, you came into this game against the, uh, the Phoenix with only 18 players. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk about the, uh, the, the dynamic of, of how difficult that is? Because when I coached the Phoenix in 2014, I know how tough it was to have the full complement of 20 players there. Yeah. I mean, anytime you lose a body, it you feel it. Um, you know, you're allowed to dress 20 on a game day, which is tight to begin with. Um, you know, and like players and, and coaches, I'm sure, you know, will echo even just bumping that to 21 and making it three lines would, you know, would make such a big difference. So the value of one body uh, can't be overstated. Um, to be two bodies down, uh, obviously, especially in a game that was so hot and humid in Philly that day um, is really, really tough. So, you know, we were short to begin with. Um, it changed the way that uh, we were calling and administering lines. It changed our general strategy. Um, it made us really think about um, ways that we could save legs and we could, you know, find ourselves as a four-quarter team. Um, unfortunately, it didn't work out this this particular game. Uh, we ran out of gas for sure. Um, you know, but but playing with 18 is, is very, very challenging. The first quarter, you, you guys hung in there pretty well. To be honest, I mean, how are you feeling after the first quarter? Uh, feeling great. I mean, that was the game plan for us. We knew coming in, uh, we were missing some some really big contributors uh, for that game. Um, we had a number of guys that were, you know, big O-line starters that were big D uh, leaders for us that just weren't present. Um, so we knew that we were a little bit of a skeleton staff, and we knew that Philly knew that. Um, so we... You know, we're ready to just get in and land the first punch. Um, and we came out hot uh, and aggressive. We uh, got a hold and a break to start the game. We were in control uh, and managed to hold on to that, you know, pretty much through the entire first quarter. Um, but, you know, looking back on the game, especially those final minutes in, in every quarter, you can kind of see um, the legs start to catch up with us a little bit. Yeah, you're not just missing anybody either, like, you're down Van Dusen and uh, Ferdell, who led the team. They were top five in completions that season. So it's a lot of throws and passes and catches that are going to new players. So I I was really into, um, in 2019, I thought the Phoenix did a really good job of stopping players like uh, Max Shepard. We we had a really good track record against Rowan. Um, and... And I, I mentioned this because the 2019 Max Shepard was my pit, personal pick for MVP. And I just wanted to say some stats about him uh, because I got really into it in this game. So it's He's true an MVP. That, so you you were on the Max Shepard for 2019 AUDL MVP. Yeah, I thought well, he was. Welcome aboard. <laughs> <laughs> I just so he scored. He scored or assisted on 43 percent of all the Pittsburgh points, which is wild. When you adjust for his playing time and Pittsburgh's offensive and defensive uh, efficiency, on every point that he was on that Pittsburgh scored, he was responsible for 70% of those scores. That's how valuable he was on the field. 
Mm-hmm. So if he was on the field and Pittsburgh scored, seven out of those ten scores were either from or to him. So that's how that's how incredible he was in the game. And in this game, I'm looking at it and he has turnover after turnover after turnover, and I'm like, that can't be that great. And then I look at the final stat line; it's like eleven goals or something ridiculous. It was wild to watch. Mm-hmm. And you're the coach. I'm not asking you to give us any secrets, but something that I really took away from this game was watching Nard really pay attention to his hammer. And every time he would put his hand straight up whenever back through that fake. Is that something that when you were watching it stood out to you at all? Yeah, I think, you know, I, when it comes to Max Shepard, the defensive effort that, you know, Philly put forth that day was, was pretty solid. You know, Max is going to get his always, um, you know, but uh the Philly D was definitely impressive that day, and there was definitely um, some pressure on Hux, uh, and he he put a couple Hux to the turf. You know that's a little bit unusual for him, and the hammer was in the back of everyone's mind. You could see high active hands every time that he turned for that, uh, and a couple times you know you you got a pump that maybe he was putting if it was a little bit more open. Um, the really interesting thing about our offense and him particularly that day is that you know of the seven guys that we were trotting out there for every point on O, only one person uh, was in their natural position. And that was John Mast as as, as a handler. Um, the other handlers, you know, you mentioned Ken, Kenny Fredella, um, Sam Van, we were missing some big um, handler position stalwarts for us that year. But like uh, David Vatz, myself, and Max Shepard were the other three handling options. So, you know, Max is a player who's so unbelievably dynamic and i think that you know the key to his success this past season was really getting him involved in an offense that he could play a number of different roles he could keep momentum he could be all over the field and you had to guard him everywhere um this philly game you know he he had to spend some more time back behind the disc which i think you know was good for his legs considering how how light we were but you know definitely didn't allow him to get into that deadly rhythm that that we saw 2019 max Shepard get into where he was unstoppable, really. Unstoppable, yeah. <laughs> well, is your strategy, I mean, so I see he's just putting up pucks sometimes, which it's Max Shepard. He's accurate as hell. So, of course, you wanted to do that. But in this game, was that the strategy, try to get those home runs kind of real fast? Yeah, this, I mean, part of the strategy was to take advantage of power position and good looks. Um, we knew that, you know, um, I mentioned that, you know, only one guy being in his natural position um, all of our downfield cutters were um, guys who, you know, spent the entire rest of the season on the D line for us. We didn't have any downfield, O like traditional O line or steady O line cutters. So we knew that, you know, um, the more that we, the more passes that we throw, the more dump resets that we have to run. You know, we're just setting ourselves up for potential miscommunication. And I think we did see some of those situations. Um, you know, like Max had an open in cut at one point and, and threw over into a, a double team that like he maybe would have recognized if he had a little more familiarity with the downfield cutters. Um, so we were trying to take our shots and take advantage of power position and, and um, early strike high probability shots. Um, it was definitely part of our plan. Well, it, it was also working in the beginning and also in the very beginning of the second half too, the Hucks are connecting. And for whatever reason, Philly isn't able to defend them. So it's not like those were bad looks to start the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so the second, the second quarter really doomed you. Yeah. Yeah. The second quarter was, uh, 
you know, we waited a little longer for our second win than I think we we could afford to. So I, I have a question about this game for you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's six to five. The Phoenix have just scored um, a point. Uh, a Hemi Huck, a, a Himalaya Meta Huck, Harvish. Hemi hucked it to Arcata. It was nuts. So Himalaya, Himalaya yeah, Meta, two goals, three assists in this game. Well, he had a hurt hamstring. Oh, we were talking about those having <laughs> Patrol and, and Phoenix. He he had an injured hamstring from nursing it from Patrol, so that's why, he, of course, he was throwing it a little more. So uh, Bailey's trying to fill time in between the poles, and he goes, Pat Hammonds could yammer with the best of them. It always got <laughs> under people's skin. What's he talking about there? So I, when I think of myself, and this might be different from the way that other people perceive me, who knows? You know, I'm not going to go out on, on a limb and say I know that for sure. But, you know, I, I like to, you know, to smack talk and have a good time with people. Um, and I think that the Saul family is one that I know really, really well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a Philly kid. I, I grew up in the Philadelphia area, but my um, ultimate experience is almost exclusively Pittsburgh. Like I didn't really pick up the sport until I, I moved uh, out to the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and even when I came back in the summers, you know, I didn't play Pat a summer. I played Mercer County in Jersey. So, you know, I was mixing it up with um, with Bailey and with Isaac and with Noah, and I played against Ruben in college. So, you know, I think that they're great people. They're really fun to talk to. Um, and we had some good rivalries with them and just, you know, enjoyed the ability to go back and forth. So it was all uh, great spirited and, you know, I just wonderful people. And I'm, I'm glad that I left some kind of impression. <laughs> Mercer, Mercer's a tough league. I mean, that's a, that's a trash talking league up there. Yeah, it was great. And, you know, like that, my first experience with that was coming off my freshman year of college. So I have a, a year of college under my belt. Uh, we went to nationals for the second time. Uh, and I came back and got a chance with some of the older pick guys, like the Sean McComb, Josh Suskin, uh, the Bellingers, that, that, those guys, to go out and play with some Pike legends. Um, you know, and I'm playing with Walt and MJ and, and some guys that, you know, are, have been really big in the, in the you know, uh, Philly Jersey club scene for a while. So that experience as a young player was so impactful. It's Walt's 50th birthday today. Wow. <laughs> that that meant nothing to myself or Harvest, but I'm sure Steve got a big kick out of it. <laughs> well, Clickies was uh, turns 50 today, so Mercer County Legends. Yep. Um, Steve, you pointed out that the second quarter, things kind of start to fall apart for Pittsburgh. And yeah. part of it is there's a throw in the first in the first quarter that Nick Patel makes, and it's a throw that like when it happens in summer league, I get so annoyed because I can't say anything about it where someone who's new and they catch the disc on an in-cut, it's a great in-cut, and then they look at their dump and they throw it, and it's just way too far away for the dump to possibly get it. And the dump has started making an upline cut anyways. They have no chance. Nick Patel throws his throw in the first quarter, and I'm like, what's happening here? Why would he do that? That's so frustrating. That's like a new player throw. And then uh, you guys end up doing it to end the second quarter. I think it happens like two or three points in a row. Mm-hmm. And it, it probably is what you're talking about, that you guys aren't used to handling together. So if you have those new handlers, that's got to be tough, right? Yeah, definitely. And I remember um, one of those instances was, you know, John Mast making uh, an upline cut. 
at the same time that Shep, you know, just goes to center it back. Uh, and I'm sitting as the far handler on the far side of the field, just watching it fall just out of reach, like seeing it go up and recognizing it right away, but being a little too uh, far from the play to make an impact. But that's exactly what it is, you know. And at that point, we have two guys who have played together for, um, you know, the whole entire season, but not necessarily in the roles that they're in. And, um, you know, like Philly, Philly put some pressure on. They made us work. Uh, against Marks, they made us work in the backfield, um, and you know we were scrapping for everything. And when you get tired and you're a little bit unfamiliar, those kind of mistakes can happen. And th- you know they're crushing. You leave a a short field turn with an opportunity for a quick punch, um, and you know Philly made us pay on every single one, except yeah. one. I think they dropped one in the end zone. So <laughs> I don't know how much we had to do about that, but they made us pay for the most part. James Pollard dropped one in the end zone. Yeah. Poor Pollard. Yeah. (laughs) He had a good game, though, James, for the most part, other than that drop. Well, the uh, Thunderbirds and the Phoenix now have a regular date with each other being in the uh, new Atlantic division. So um, of the 18 players you brought with you over to uh, Philadelphia for this game was uh, Shana Reppermond. Can you just talk about uh, her game in this contest and just how well she played? Because... Her her name like she she didn't seem to stand out at all as far as like being burned or or be, like she held her own is what is what I'm talking about and it was really impressive. Yeah, I mean sometimes when you play on the defensive side, um, no news is good news. Um, and you know, Shayna really uh, was impressive that night. Um, she was somebody who joined us that season as part of our Supercell initiative, which was our um, mixed All Star showcase against DC. Um, and we had been preparing for the Supercell showdown the previous week. Um, so she had played with uh, the Thunderbirds and, and had some opportunity to learn some of our systems and some of our, you know, uh, get indoctrinated in, in the things that we were doing. Um, and she just, you know, hit the ground running, was an unbelievable teammate, uh, super positive, uh, super involved in, in you know, talking to, to other players about what uh, she was seeing and, and what she could improve and like really was was a wonderful addition to our roster that day. Um, and she played again uh, another game for us that season. I think, you know, we closed out the season with her against Detroit. Uh, and if I remember correctly, she scored three goals. Uh, you know, she she's a baller. So we were really lucky to have her with us that day. And I think you mentioned uh, before the podcast that uh, she was the first female uh, professional ultimate Frisbee player to play in Philadelphia. Uh, yeah. Is that- you know, that's that that's something pretty special for her to uh, have on her resume. Yeah, it was cool to be a part of that. So uh, so the uh, the Phoenix held a 13 nine lead at halftime. And uh, I, I got to give your team credit. You came out and you you pulled within 13 16 there after a uh, a Max Shepard goal. Uh, midway through the uh, the third quarter, How, what did you say to the team at halftime, despite having not not the greatest second quarter, to keep their spirits up and keep them fighting in that game? Yeah, um, mindset was really really big for us this game. Uh, we knew that we were coming in with only eighteen. We knew that we had six, seven, eight guys who were um, or players, I should say, who were who were playing their their first game. Uh, as a Thunderbird that season. So, you know, we knew we had the deck stacked against us and it was, you know, our outlook from the beginning that we were going to punch with everything that we had, uh, that we were going to stay positive and supportive of each other the whole time and that we were just going to, you know, like really enjoy the game. Um, and at the end of the day, that's why that's why we're all here because we love this game as players, as as people who are, you know, part of upholding it. 
And as competitors, we don't love losing, you know, by any means. But uh, we loved the challenge. We loved the fight. Um, we we t- realized in the first quarter that, you know, we were built to compete um, even even uh, with some tough sledding ahead of us. Uh, and really halftime was about catching our breath, about, you know, reminding ourselves that that we had what we needed and we just needed to uh, let things slow down to, you know, to rest our legs a little bit and be ready to come out swinging. And, you know, we, we saw that early in the third quarter that we kind of picked up the same way we did, you know, right off the opening pull. Just after that, things, the, the, the wheels sort of started to come off a little bit and you, you, you started turning the disc over and uh, mm-hmm. you, you, you tried throwing the zone a little bit that seemed to save some legs. Did you feel like you were, your, your team was starting to tire a little bit? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, we, I think we fell victim to a couple three Oh runs. That was really, you know, the difference in this game. Like we, we gave up a three Oh run in the second um, right at the end of the half that really like cracked things open a little bit. Um, we gave up a 3-0 run right at the end of the third. Um, you know, and we're sitting down six coming into the fourth quarter, uh, and there it is, right there. Um, and when you're tired, uh, you know, those runs, especially with some of the turnovers you mentioned earlier, that were miscommunications or you know short field turns, like you're not doing yourselves any favors. So um, fatigue definitely caught up to us, and and uh, you know it was just a couple points here and there where we had to dig ourselves out of it. Uh, but those can be really costly in the ADL. Well, that also is difficult because that last point going into half, I think both teams at the time were probably really frustrated that they didn't get it. So you guys have, you have it on the goal line, and there's this huge, I don't know the Pittsburgh players as well as I know the Philly players, mm-hmm. but there's this big, like, around flick from one corner of the end zone to the other corner that just is in the air too long and gets deep. Like, when you're watching that now, when I was watching, it was like, oh, they should have just scored here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get it back, and it's just another miscommunication between yeah. handlers that aren't used to playing together. Yep. Like, and at the very end, it ends with Trey throwing to Mott a cut that Trey thinks Mott's gonna make, and Mott's like, "I'm not making that cut. Why are you throwing it there?" And that's how that half ends. I feel like both teams came out of that half feeling like they should have scored. And if you score there, it's you know it's ten thirteen. It's then a three point game, yeah. Right, but it, very, you, it could have been five. Yeah, that, that was a really interesting point because it was a it was a big swing opportunity. We had a chance to punch, get a little momentum, and go into half down three, you know, feeling pretty good. Um, you know, <laughs> we were very, very close to going in with our tail between our legs, looking down five. Um, you know, but that was that was not a point that uh, <laughs> the fans deserve to be a part of, that's for sure. Right, but like imagine if you score there, right? And now it's 10 13 and then you come out in the third quarter and you immediate it's like an immediate huck score it takes like 30 seconds off the clock mm-hmm. it would have been a totally different game at that point it's mm-hmm. it's you know it's 13 11 you're right in it mm-hmm. yeah i mean like we knew and, and that was part of you know our strategy um around the idea of opening up the deep shot was we knew that this game was going to be kind of on the razor's edge um, at a number of different times. You know, we knew that it probably wasn't going to stay there forever. Uh, and that's the way it ended up playing out. But we knew that, you know, if if we could take advantage of the opportunities that we had and we could make just a little bit of magic, um, that we could really find ourselves in a game and put a lot of pressure. Uh, because I'd have to imagine, you know, that Philly team was better than us that day. There's no doubt about it. Um, and if we're going into the locker room hot on their heels, you know, that's a pretty different atmosphere that you know that they they have versus what we're going in with, um, which can be which can be big. So 
I had a question about the zone that you guys ran in this mm-hmm. game. Just to, it, I mean, Steve, maybe you on the broadcast said it was a one three three. I don't really know because I can't see the back three people, and you can see that obviously really so well. It just, but it looked like a one three two one. So sure. Yeah. Well, so, my, my only question is, why not double team? Like it's the AUDL. That, yeah, I think double teams can be really effective when they're well designed. Um, and I think one of the traps of double teams that, um, you know, especially teams who are who are tinkering with it um, in the early stages, you know, they make is just that a double team pressure brings a lot of uh, opportunity with it. And it's it's just not true. If you have a, a slow double team or if you're not getting points of pressure strategically at different places on the field, good throwers are going to beat it all the time. And I, I think, you know, when you're looking at trying to save legs or trying to, you know, will a short staff team through four quarters, the last thing you want to do is run two people around chasing the disc, you know, point after point after point. Um, so that's why we didn't see much double team in in that game um the other you know defensively we didn't have our usual suspects so you know there were some more um detailed uh double team pressure defenses that we have been working on over the last couple years that i just don't feel like we had the chemistry or the experience to run um so one of the things that we did lean on was our four three zone, which we used a number of different times that year was the first year that we ever put it together um, but the general philosophy behind the 4-3 zone is, um, you know, to slow play down to speed the game up, uh, if that makes any sense. It seems kind of counterintuitive, but the idea is, you know, the more passes and the more lateral movement that Philly's making, the more time that's running off that clock. So if we can buy some time for our O-line to get water, to get rested, to get out and get fresh, you know, we're looking at a better chance of, of getting a punch and not surrendering or a break. Um, and the same is true for the other defenders who aren't on the field. Um, I also think that the 4-3 allows, you know, a little bit more than your traditional zone, a little bit of leg saving, right? It's a pretty active, um, you know, like players have to be active to execute it well, but it does save legs, generally speaking. I got a question about something that happened near the end of the third quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, Liam Rosen on your team got hit with an, an, an integrity violation. Um, can you talk about what happened on the field there? Was there some cursing at referees or was there some complaining going on? Or I mean, the referees weren't exactly doing the, the, the greatest job in the world, so I can kind of understand if there was some complaining going on. But uh, can you just like shed some light on what happened there? I wish I could, honestly. Um, but like looking back over it, I, I realized that that was something that I, I missed. I didn't remember that being a thing on the sidelines. Like I don't remember it being um, bothersome to me at that moment. And even watching the play, you know, not to say that we were okay with guys getting those kind of infractions. I just didn't feel like what I saw watching it back warranted anything unusual. There seemed to be a discussion. Uh, there seemed to be some contact on the throw and maybe you know my my best guess is that um liam should have called you know an integrity for making contact at the point of the throw um but it didn't work out that way initially eventually uh, it, it did but you know i saw liam and trey also have a conversation shake hands and i was surprised watching it back to realize that that came to something a little bit more than what it appeared to be okay all right gotcha just wanted to do a 
Jordan wanted to touch base on that. I, I wish said, I had more dirt for you. I just, I honestly don't even remember the play. And looking back on it, it just seems like, you know, we, we missed a call we could have made and, and Trey let us hear about it. And, and one thing led to another, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I got you. That's, that's really, that's really funny how that kind of works. Uh, whenever you, when you, when you play ultimate and you know, there's a foul refs don't call anything. And then you just stand there like, what's going on? And then you point mm-hmm. to that player and then your own team like has their hands up raised. And then it, it, it's crazy how the referee kind of goes like, Oh uh, yeah, maybe there was a foul. And then he calls a foul. Like, I don't understand. That shouldn't be a thing. I feel like if the refs don't see it, that that should not be a foul, especially in ADR when you have like four refs. Yeah. The integrity rule, I think, is is like really impressive. You know, I've seen it work ways where it's just so good, where, you know, like even uh, professional referees in, in our biggest sports miss calls, right? And the ability for guys to say, like, you missed that one, I negatively affected the outcome, like, let's send it back, um, is really impressive when it happens in the moment. Uh, I will say, like, Liam, the player involved for us, that was his first AUDL game. Um, and I think it was the only one he played for the Thunderbirds that season. Um, so, you know, like, am I going to be hypercritical that he missed an opportunity to play the integrity rule when it's only something that comes up through AUDL? You know, like, I, th- I think it's just a lack of familiarity played a, a role in that as well. So, I I mean, I don't really understand what happened there because the the broadcast says it's an unsportsmanlike call on an integrity call, which doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense to me how that could happen. The only thing I can think of is that right before we go into that quarter break, Trey gets fouled on a throw he's trying to make and just stands there yelling at the poor referee until uh, <laughs> until he gets the call. That's the only thing I can think of. And we saw a great integrity call this game where Dave Bear called somebody mm-hmm. in on the sideline because yep. he had a better uh, vantage point. So it's it's not like you know both teams made made great calls. And the other thing is that I did not think people were really complaining about the refs in this game. I didn't think the refs did that bad a job watching it back. Yeah, I, the other ones that we've watched. I, I agree. I thought it was a. I thought it was called really well. I thought it was played really well. You know, like there were uh, there were some some physical plays, especially in the air. But both teams, you know, were were out there grinding, and and that was really the only situation where we saw hands on hips in you know in in response to any of the calls being made. So, you know, it's it's interesting that something you know came of that when the rest of the game I thought was called really well and played really clean. Yeah, other than you're right. Other than those end zone deep passes, where I think there's contact on both ends, both both um, the Phoenix and uh, the Thunderbirds both had contact in the end zone. So, but those weren't ever called. So, and that and that was pretty even. So I yeah. thought we're even really pretty... contested. I felt like you know all parties involved were pretty quick to you know accept the scrap as part of the play and and just kind of get back to it. Well, the, the fourth quarter in this game kind of got away from you guys. I mean, was it kind of frustration? Was it kind of fatigue, a combination of both? Or were you just anxious to, to, to get out of there at that point? I don't want to say they were anxious to get out of there because the I, I, team, that, was, that was poor. That was poorly worded. That was. My yeah. Well, no, I was going to say our team uh, actually spent a couple hours with the Philly guys. We went out afterwards and. You know, got some food and got some drinks and, oh, and nice. mixed it up a little bit. So Very anxious to get out of yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> we were not hightailing it out uh, by any means. I, I think, you know, like, I think more than anything, it was fatigue. The wheels fell off a little bit. Um, 
you know, like obviously we're frustrated with the result and we wanted to find ourselves, you know, more competitive and with a chance to, to make something happen down the stretch. Um, but all in all, you know, like spirits were high. Um, we got the, the advantage of that kind of game is we allowed a lot of our players to, to take on roles that they ordinarily don't get to take on. Right. So it was a really valuable learning experience for us. It was a really like good um, team morale opportunity, even in this, in the face of a loss. And, you know, if you look at the rest of the season moving forward for us, we go ahead and win three of our final four games. Um, the only loss I think was like a close one to Madison who smacked us first time around. So we closed that gap pretty tremendously. And then we go on to win at Minnesota in overtime. That was a, you know, playoff team that year and, and close out with back-to-back wins against Detroit. So, you know, you could say that Philly was kind of the springboard to us putting together, you know, um, what we saw at the end of 18 and, and most of 2019. The, the Phoenix saw similar g- growth like that in in, uh, in 2019, where they uh, used their youth and played their youth a lot and it started to pay off at the end of 2019. Did you see the uh, the same thing at the end of, of, of 2018 with the uh, Thunderbirds where the players that you had in the Phoenix game started to, uh, to emerge for you as steady contributors toward the end? Yeah, definitely. I, I think, you know, not just from a experience and a confidence standpoint, but also from an understanding of what it would take to really be successful. Um, you know, I think of Max Shepard as a situation here. You know, he's somebody who had an impressive statistic season, but it didn't yield the results that we wanted. His, you know, uh, turnover percentages were much higher than he wanted to be. So, like, even someone like that, you know, who gets a chance to to really work on his game, to think about his game, and to think about what the future could look like for someone like him, you know, gets to see that realized in the following season. So it helped our younger players um, step up. It also helped our best players recognize, um, you know, how they could be contributing members to a, you know, potentially a final four team. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about your university of Pittsburgh experiences and and whatnot there. I mean, uh, you've, uh, you've been out, you've been, uh, how many national championships did you win out of Pittsburgh? Did you win? uh, Were you there for two of them? As a player, I didn't get any. Uh, oh, I was oh. on the front end of our streak. So okay. I, I was at Pitt. No, no worries. Uh, from uh, 05 to 09. So Pitt had punched their first ticket to nationals my senior year of high school. I showed up to campus, you know, coming off that first year um, hunger. Uh, I, I went to nationals four times. We lost in quarters to a very good Carlton team my senior year. Um, but then, you know, went on to watch some of the guys that I crossed over with uh, win back-to-back championships just a couple years later. And, you know, especially that 2012, 20, you know, 2012 year is like one of the most dominant teams across the board. Now, you and I, you and I spoke a, a few years ago. Uh, I, don't, I mean, we, I'm not even sure if you remember this or not, but uh, we, uh, we talked about how you went down to uh, North Carolina to uh, Mike Garrick's camp. I played with Mike Garrick's at uh, East Carolina, and uh, we won two college national championships together down there. And um, you you talked about the influence you brought back from him to Pittsburgh. Can you uh, can you just expound on that a little bit here, and then talk about what that what it was like to learn under him? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I mean, Mike G. Mike Garrick's did some amazing things in college, winning championships with two different teams. 
Um, so super respected in the game. Um, and, you know, like I, I think there, there's so much that he brings to the table, but I think two of the things that um, were kind of central to his philosophy was toughness and like uh, faith and commitment to systems. And when I think about a young pit team that was figuring out really um, how to be a champion, um, you know, because we were at that point making nationals or, you know, our first year at at, um, at Wolf Camp preparing to make nationals. But he just gave us so much as far as ways to think about um, structure and discipline and, and systemic approach to the game um, and just like a toughness and an unapologetic ability to commit really everything to to what that effort means um, to, to to be unafraid to to take risks and have confidence and and support each other on you know as much of a climb as it is to to compete for a national championship so uh, I know that that experience was really central you know to that early pit um, rise and I was just super grateful to be a part of it I learned a lot that does it influence your coaching career to this day I would say that him and I probably have pretty different coaching styles. Oh, no, uh, I think, I'm, I'm sure you do. I mean, there's nobody <laughs> like him. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think that those ingredients to success, you know, still um, exist today. I think teams that are thoughtful and, and disciplined and organized around, you know, what they want to do and teams that are, uh, tough and relentless and and unafraid of the moment um you know that that's that's part of the winning formula you know obviously you need talent as well but you know um those are two really central pieces and and i think still stay kind of close to the mentality that is that remains in pittsburgh to this day and uh the we would be remiss if we didn't mention that Michael Ng just won the Callahan Award at University of Pittsburgh, fifth-year senior. How much pride do you feel as a as a Pittsburgh alum when when someone uh, from uh, University of Pittsburgh achieves such a high honor? So much. Um, I mean, it's it's Michael has been so impressive at Pitt from his very first day there. Um, but you know, not just through his play, uh, but also just character and, and what he represents. And, and, you know, um, it's, it's really, really special to see, uh, Michael and, and Trent before him represent, uh, university of Pittsburgh at that level. And, you know, to, to be a part of, um, standing alongside all the guys that both of them competed against and, and come out on top is like the amount of pr program pride that comes with that is really pretty special. So we had a large zoom call with, uh, some alums, some current players, everybody was hanging out, um, catching up before the ceremony. We all watched it together and had a chance to, you know, see him after the fact. So, um, you know, a lot of pit pride, not just here, but, you know, everywhere throughout uh, the community to see him win. And what's it, what, what is that, what does that brotherhood mean to everyone? I mean, the college experience is just so different, you know, like you are living essentially with your teammates and you are spending so much time with guys. And, you know, um, we're lucky enough at Pitt where we've had a sustained level of success and, and we have personal connections at all ends of the spectrum. Um, you know, we still get together for alumni events where we have, you know, our program founder um, mixing it up with Michael Ng, you know. Uh, you know, just over, over 
food and drinks and all that fun stuff. So uh, it's a program that has stayed really, really tight knit. Um, and, you know, it's it's wonderful to be a part of and to see them um, continue to to push on. I guess, you know, I never thought about it this till right now, but I guess the national streak, you know, could be considered uh, ended as of 2020 with, with no event. We've been there every year since 2005. No, no, no. It's just got an asterisk uh, <laughs> side of it. That's all. I like that. I like that. Harbish, who do you think the the player of this game was? It's definitely Mike Arcata. I mean, Pat, I mean, you talk about the atmosphere and the music and DJ and the crowd. That's all Mike Arcata. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's that, and it's also his amazing gameplay. <laughs> and it was a steady game. So when we talk about players, we see them kind of emerge during each quarter. We might see a run of three, three goals in a row or something amazing. Mike Arcata was kind of a steady dose of him throughout mm-hmm. the game, which is ridiculous, especially in that first half. I feel like he was definitely a catalyst get Philadelphia going with that amazing catch in the end zone. Uh, Shaggy was in the first quarter where he just had that layout and then Steve yells out like, that's my summer league guy. Like, why is he doing that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's my summer player. league captain, man. He had, to, he had to watch that stuff. <laughs> he needs to be careful. That's what you said. <laughs> yeah, he was, I mean, Arcata was really impressive uh, that game and, and you know, we didn't really have an answer. Um, you know, defensively, we had a little bit of size uh, and we had, a, we had some athleticism, but we didn't have guys who checked both boxes at the same time uh, to the same degree that we did throughout most of the season. Um, so guys like Mott and Arcata got out on us and, you know, uh, made some really impressive plays under pressure or, or ran through, um, you know, some, some good uh, defensive attempts, but he was really hard to contain. We didn't have an answer. Uh, how do you guys cover Trey Katzenbag? So, so Shaggy thinks that teams just see Trey Katzenbach go like a four-year-old no, dude is just here. We, and he just we, he's 47, first of all. <laughs> and second of all, we watched it happen in that D.C. game. D.C.'s like, look, if Trey wants to hang out 10 feet behind the disc, we're just going to let him. And then he did it, and it was very successful. <laughs> how, how do you guys, do you guys cover him or not? I mean, that's the real question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Trey's one of those guys where, you know, I feel like I've been – going against him forever you know like as, as, a, as a young club player he was the guy who was like you know the older guy who was still just finding a way to torch you and you know he, he's been able to do that forever um so you know there's a little bit of respect there but we also know you know like he he's as steady as it gets um he's not a big threat um as far as like the big play sneaking downfield or, or doing something um dangerous with the disc so you know he He's a guy who won't turn it over, but he also won't necessarily, um, you know, stretch all over the place. Yeah, he's a uh, he's he's uh, an anomaly. I mean, he just like seems like he's never going to uh, stop playing ultimate ever. You know? At a high level, nonetheless. At yeah. a high level, nonetheless. <laughs> right, no question. You know, they're gonna have to create a new division for him. <laughs> <laughs> you you know what surprised me about Trey Katzenberg? I mean, he, he's been playing ultimate for how long? And it's just like. I feel like as you grow older, I mean, just like LeBron James, like as you like get more years to league, you become a shooter. Like, why is Trey Katz like not hucking the disc? I mean, I feel like by now he should be like a professional at this. Like, just like, oh, a huck is so easy. It's just super easy. It's like a, either a dump or a huck really fast. 
You know what's funny? I had a dude on my summer league team named uh, Ted who explained this to me. He said when he was younger, he was a shooter because he was more willing to play defense if he turned it. And as he grew older, he became more conservative with the disc because he didn't want to have to run around after he turned the disc over. Fair enough. That's a good point. No question. I agree with that, but Trey puts himself on, like, universe defense lines, dude. Like, come on. Yeah, but maybe he should not have. Like, that's all. <laughs> maybe someone else. Maybe, like, Arcata or Mod should have been on universe D-lines. You, you know what else I found, I found really funny? I think Ethan Forden had the most – the amount of hucks Ethan Forden had in this game is probably equivalent to the amount of hucks he had all last year. <laughs> he was – he was unbelievable. I wrote in my notes multiple times, bring back 2018 Ethan Fortin. It was amazing. <laughs> he, he was my runner-up for player of the game. It was nuts. I like couldn't believe it. And he was so quick on his moves, too. He always had the next thrower queued up. You know who my player of the game was, though? It was not Arcata. I've got a guess on who, who it was, but it, it can't be Sean Mott. It's not Mott. Okay. Because Mott's always Mott can always be the player of the game for the Phoenix, yeah. right? I mean, Mott was incredible. Mott was incredible. I'm going to go with Igor Schmola. No, yeah, he had a good go game. Igor oh, you, for you, for oh, me, yeah. I'm going with Igor Schmola. Yes, I'm going with Igor Schmola because he had he had a couple sick D's and he had a great layout grab and it's probably the best I've seen Igor Schmola play. Yeah, and when, when when am I going to ever get a chance to give Igor Smola a player in a game ever like you know again? <laughs> I don't know. You might never Jeez, see. Him. That was his first. I start. might never see him again. That's right. He's not on the team this year. Steve, that was his first start of the season. Was Pittsburgh? <laughs> that was well, the first time he was in uniform. <laughs> well, he played like it. He played like he earned the jersey that day. <laughs> there were a lot of people on D line actually who I think got a lot of work in. Because uh, Campy and Casey Vaughn also had big games, and they're like pretty new to the team at that point. How so, about James, James Pollard as your player in the game? Mine? Yeah. Do you want to oh. keep guessing, or do you want me to tell you? No, it's not James Pollard. I'll, I'll give you one more guess. Uh. <laughs> no, it's not Ben Davies. I miss Ben Davies. I like that dude. He's, he plays on the New Zealand national team. Uh, no, my player of the game was Eric Nardelli. Oh, because, good choice. Good because, choice. Because, come on. Uh, let me tell you why. Max Shepard had an unbelievable game. Max Shepard had, let me read it off from the actual list so I don't get anything wrong. Shepard had seven assists, three goals, uh, a D. But also in that list is 10 throwaways. And I, and I counted because I was really curious. When Nard's covering Shepard, it's two of those seven goals and one of those three assists. And six of those throwaways. And it's not an accident. It's not like Nard's just ha – it's not luck. And it's also not luck that all of Shepard's hammer assists come when Nick Patel is covering him. And it's not luck that in the fourth quarter – in the fourth quarter, Nick Patel is matched up on Max Shepard and runs up and doesn't even set a mark. His hands go immediately in the air. And Max Shepard fakes the hammer into his up upturned hands anyways. It's not an accident that all those things happen. It's because you could see it right from the start of the game. Nard had prepared diligently to cover someone who is like, who is unlike anything in the league, really. I, I mean, I am blown away every time I watch Max Shepard. But the fact that Nard was able to accomplish that is why I, I thought Nard was my, my player of the game. Although Max, Arcata and Ethan Ford are all, were tied for second place. Max Shepard was doing whatever he wanted 
on that no, field, okay? He yes, wasn't. he was. Only, only well, with Patel and Casey Vaughn are covering him. All his production is is against Nick Patel and Casey Vaughn. When Nard's you, on him, it's like a different beast. A different did, beast. Did you see him sky Nard? Did you see him sky Nard in the end zone? Wasn't yeah, that crazy? Did that you was see, a, did you, it was a good play. He's Nardelli, a great player. Nardelli was so scared of Shep. He was giving him so many yards of room. Max Shepard has the quickest acceleration I've ever seen. I mean, Pat, if you have combine stats on Max Shepard, please send them our way. Because I want to know <laughs> what this kid's doing. I want to see. I want to. I want to know what his forty is. I want to know what his vert is. Because this kid was ridiculous. Okay, his acceleration is nuts. He floats on the field. Mm-hmm. I, I've never seen. He floats. It, running for him looks so easy. It's so easy for him to go from zero to sixty like a Tesla. I mean, Nardelli was doing everything he could, but he was giving him so much space. Shepard was getting easy unders all day. And you know what? He played the most amount of points. And that's ridiculous that, that even if he played most amount of points, he was that effective. I mean, of course, he was getting easy unders. He was taking them because he needed that, he needed that rest. He needed that, uh, that rest for the next point he was going to be on. What I'm saying is that Max Shepard threw, threw 10 discs into the ground that game. And six of those 10 were when Nard was covering him. And it's because Nard like, must have practiced all week specifically how to guard Shepard's throws. It's not an accident that that happens. I will say, you know, it's possible also that game time contributes to that. You know, I I wonder how many of those, and I haven't looked at this specifically, how many of those turnovers happen right before the end of the quarter or right before the end of the half. Um, You know, like fatigue may have played a role, but I mean, with Max Shepard, I mean, (laughs) you guys have said a lot, um, you know, but like he, he continues to amaze all of us all the time. He's, he's a really impressive guy. He's a great, great player to coach. He's fantastic. Um, but, you know, not only does he have Ferrari speed, but he just never, never stops working. Um, you know, so you take one thing away, he's willing to try nine more uh, to get his. So he's, you know, he's he's something special. Now, hey, Pat, speaking of, speaking of Max there, did you feel like at the All-Star game last year that it was his coming out party for on the national level? Certainly, certainly. Uh, I mean, guys who were familiar with us, you know, I, th- I think our division knows knows Max Shepard <laughs> well enough. Yeah. Um, and, and some of the teams that, you know, have seen him, you know, like he, he rolled through uh, Philly in, in 2018. So you guys had some exposure. But, you know, um, I, I was amazed to see him drop so far in the draft. I was really surprised to see him go 20 out of 30. Uh, when it came to the live draft, I thought he'd go much higher. Um, but I, I think that tells you a little bit about what the the outsider national perspective on him, you know, was. Uh, I think he came in and, and turned a lot of heads that game. Um, but it was really enjoyable to watch because that's our guy. That's what he does. Uh, and he's not afraid of the moment. And I think, you know, the bigger the challenge, the 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 more excited he is to dive right in. Um, you know, obviously from a, from a talent standpoint, he was a pretty obvious choice, although we have a lot of really talented players, um, you know, so I don't want to take anything away from, you know, our other guys, we got Thomas Edmonds, Sam Van Dusen, who would have been phenomenal, uh, and a couple more, obviously. Um, but Shepard also just lives and breathes this kind of stuff. And, you know, that competition, that the, the quality of, of the event, um, and he was ready to run through a wall over and over and over again to to leave his mark. You know, I think I think he's been elite his whole career. I played I played with him in high school. We played Fox Chapel. He was ridiculous. He almost bageled us. 
when we played him. He was impossible to cover. And I, and he also played Impulse, I think, too. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think what really hurt his career was he, for whatever reason, I don't think he won the University of Pittsburgh. You know, he's a Pittsburgh-bound guy. He did not go to the University of Pittsburgh. I think he was being groomed to go to the University of Pittsburgh, but didn't go there. He went to Millersville. So, right? He went to Edinburgh. Edinburgh, yeah, Edinburgh, yeah. Edinburgh, and he I, he wasn't playing with the elite guys that you would get when you play for University of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't getting to those national runs. So, of course, his name is just not out there anymore because he went to a college team that, that, that even though it was good, it beat my Penn State B team, of course. But <laughs> he wasn't getting the experience of years at Pittsburgh. So it's great to see him come back into the professional and club scene and, and really start growing. And now he's like this unstoppable player. But of course, sure. you also have other great players on that University of Pittsburgh team. I know you groomed them in Impulse. And there, there's a lot of pride in that, that YCC team that they have in Pittsburgh. Yeah, we, and we've had some guys who have stayed in the city and continued that fight uh, for – for Pitt uh, or the city of Pittsburgh in general, which has been really, really special. We have, you know, our, our farm system uh, has been pretty solid over the years. I was part of the, the the smaller farm system with David Hogan. We had this, it was this team, I think it was under under 16 years old. It was Pulse. Pulse, yeah. You know Pulse? Yeah, yeah. I was coaching Impulse uh, with Nick Kazmarek. Um, I think alongside David Hogan and Hogan may have stayed with pulse a little bit longer than me, but yeah, that we, uh, we sent, we sent some pulse squads out to, to Blaine, Minnesota. So I'm glad you got a chance to be a part of that. Yeah. I, I think I played in one tournament, but I was, I, I think I missed the cutoff under 16. I, because our birthday was a certain month, mm. but I played in the, the one tournament in Cleveland or Calabunga, whatever it's called, but a little fun fact there. Very cool. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Eagles hat you got on there, Dad. There, uh, Pat. That's a that's a sweet uh, that's a sweet lid you got on. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I'm I'm been in Pittsburgh for you know ten years now. Um, you know, really going back to 2015 if you include college. Um, but it's got to stay strong with the Philly sports. Uh, for most of the most of the teams, it's a pretty nice fit. You know, Steelers and Eagles is a nice Sunday especially on, you know, days where you can get them back to back, get everybody sure. to stick around and watch. Uh, it's the Penn's flyers. That's contentious, uh, yes. but it, it's kind of nice to be on the other side of the fence for that big rivalry. That's for sure. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's very cool. I lost the bet for a, uh, in the 2008 Eastern conference finals um, for the uh, flyers penguins. My buddy's a huge penguins fan. Uh, so when the penguins had to play the red wings in the finals, the uh, since the, the the Flyers lost to the Penguins in the Eastern Conference Finals, I had to wear a Penguins jersey for every game of the Stanley Cup Finals, which was an absolute night. I only made it. I only made it five games. I, well, I was going to say if 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 you made it for you for the yeah, if it was for the Philly matchup, you wouldn't have made it one game. You would have been torn to shreds. I'm sure. Yeah, no, I was. I, I only <laughs> made it. I only made it through five games, and uh, it was it was hilarious because every time the Red Wings would score against the Penguins, I would be cheering my face off because I hated the Penguins. But I'd be wearing a Penguins jersey, <laughs> so people people would be like, "What is wrong with you?" <laughs> you know what I mean? You know you're supposed to be rooting for the team. I was like, "No, I lost a bet. It was terrible. Whatever." So uh, yeah, that's my uh, that's my horrible Penguins. I've lost a I've lost a horrible bet story. 
and uh, I'm not. I don't normally welch on bets, but that's one I just couldn't complete all the way through. I couldn't. I couldn't just wear that jersey any longer. I. Uh, it was. It was absolutely horrible. It felt. It, it made my skin crawl having it on my <laughs> having it on. It was. It was terrible. So. Hi, so it's, it's amazing. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead, uh, Harvest. I was just say, Pat, it's amazing that you're on this podcast because I think I was talking to Shaggy and Steve last week, and I'm like, like you don't like think about okay, so you're an Eagles fan. Think about like Jason Garrett coming on, coming on the Eagles radio <laughs> station. That's never gonna happen. That's, <laughs> that's yeah, never, that's not gonna happen. So it's crazy that you're. It's awesome that you're with us on the Phoenix podcast. Yeah, well, you know, maybe my timing's good, getting in there right before the rivalry really heats up again. So, um, you know, maybe maybe it was just the right time. Yeah, Tomlin could come on the on like the fan. Yeah, no, sure, no, of course not. <laughs> of course, of course. I'd have Jason Garrett on the Burning Bird. <laughs> <laughs> Jason Garrett, coach of the New York Giants. Jason Garrett. No, no, the former coach of the Cowboys. But also now the current coach, coach of, of the Giants. Giants. Yeah, that's just great. I mean, I mean, it's just is that just can't hey, get any better. Uh, I thought the Giants got this guy from New England that was a kicker coach. Yeah, I think so. Oh, I think right. where did Garrett go? Yeah, Harvest is right. He didn't go to the Giants. Wait, isn't Garrett still in Dallas? I th- I know that. Uh, no, McCarthy- no, McCarthy McCarthy's in Dallas now. I was gonna say okay. McCarthy came in. And uh, Rivera came in, but you're right. Rivera's oh, in Washington. He signed with the Giants. Jason Garrett did. Yeah, but he's the offensive coordinator or something, right? Right, right, right. right. Yeah, man, they should just cut Dak free. That's such a dumb. I mean, <laughs> Dak deserves no money at this point. I mean, like, what is he asking for? This is nonsense. Hey. Doug Peterson is the uh, is the uh, elder statesman of the coachings of the coaches in the NFC East now, man. I mean, it's you know, it's uh, it's something else. So, all right. By the way, um, Pat, how's the shoulder feeling with the uh, after the sho- the uh, shoulder injury that you had in 20, uh, 2017? You feeling okay? Yeah, it's feeling pretty good. Um, you know, it, I was playing in our playoff game at Minnesota. Um, the end of the 2017 season and uh, went up for a huck, got tangled coming down, fell on the shoulder. So I knew I jacked it up right away and I had to, uh, you know, fly back from Minnesota knowing something was pretty wrong. Landed in Pittsburgh, went straight to the emergency room. Uh, but, you know, luckily I uh, had a great surgeon, had some really good rehab and, you know, pretty much back to normal. I don't think I throw a heater the way that I used to, but you know, pretty much everything else is is all the way back. Pat, who's your player of the game? That's a you great could, question. You could choose a Thunderbird if you want. There are no rules. So yeah, I mean, if I had to give an overall player of the game, I think Arcata stands out for sure. He, he, you know, he was not only statistically impressive, but also um, you know just generally impressive. Um, but I would say if if I had to award a player of the game for a Thunderbird, uh, I'm going to go off the beaten path a little bit here and recognize Chris Graber. Um, he ended up, I, th- I think, with five goals for us that day. I think he was our goal leader. But yeah. I do want to say this was his first game ever with the Thunderbirds. Um, we kind of called him up. We had a connection with John Mast, 
who's a longtime Thunderbird uh, handler. And, you know, ended up bringing him into this game. He was a really good fit. He was a really impressive player. And he became part of our full-time roster last year in 2019. Was a really big um, defensive presence for us, you know, and has continued with us since then. So not only was Graber impressive in this one, but it was it was the birth of Chris Graber in the, uh, in the black and gold and something we've all been grateful for. Uh, it seems like you had a lot of players, dude. This was their first game. <laughs> So yeah, you mentioned. we did. Well, I mean, on the broadcast, they talked about, you know, Bailey mentioned, you know, I heard it was going to be 12. We were scrambling. This was this, this was not our strongest Thunderbirds team ever. And that's, you know, a, a pretty significant understatement. Um, but, you know, we we were confident and, and we were ready for the challenge. So um, it was it was a great time to be a part of it. All right. Well, for Harvish Huck Meta. For Alexander Shaggy Shragus, for Pittsburgh coach Pat Hammonds. Pat, thanks for joining us on the Burning Bird. This was great. Thanks so much. No, no problem. You, you, you're, you've been a great guest. Hopefully, we can do this a few more times in the future, especially uh, previewing or post some uh, Pittsburgh Thunderbird, Philadelphia Phoenix, Atlantic Division games. If if you would be so kind to join us. Yeah, of course. It's the beginning of the Keystone Clash with some regularity, so uh, I'd be happy to be a part of it. The Keystone Clash. I like it. <laughs> for all of my, my partners in crime, I'm Steve Leinert. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Phoenix Files.